0: You're listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. Brian is a social entrepreneur and attorney who focuses on startup companies, nonprofit organizations, and arts and
1: entertainment law issues. Creative Confidential starts now.
0: We're joined today by Max Smith, a documentary filmmaker and sound designer who was born into a family of tuba players in Omaha, Nebraska. If that doesn't get your attention, uh, I don't know what will. Uh, Mac, thanks very much for joining us today on Creative Confidential.
1: Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me, Brian.
0: We want to talk about filmmaking, and we want to talk a little bit about your journey, uh, professionally speaking, in terms of how you ended up uh, working in the creative industries. And uh, you came to—we I, I we got connected through— Um, I saw a social media post about a recent documentary that you had uh, directed and produced uh, entitled Scout's Honor uh, Inside a Marching Brotherhood, and uh, it's a terrific piece of work, and and, uh, I really want to dive into that in a little bit, but why don't uh, you introduce yourself uh, in, in a little bit more of a, a complete way than than I just did, please.
1: <laughs> sure, no problem. Um, yeah, like you mentioned, I grew up in Omaha, Nebraska, uh, to a family that was very musically inclined and involved with all different sort of aspects of uh, music, I had much older siblings, and they were heavily involved. And Marching band and concert band. And my dad was on the board of the Omaha Symphony for a number of years and was also involved with uh, the Omaha Press Club Gridiron Show, which was a a yearly roast where all the um, print and television journalists would get together and they'd put on, you know, song and dance thing, making fun of recent events and politicians and stuff. My mom was the wardrobe mistress and my dad played in the band, both tuba and bass guitar and so i totally grew up around music there would be big parties at our at our house you know once or twice a month and there would be um, all kinds of people that would come in and out and we had a baby grand piano and people would you know hop on the piano so music was definitely um, a a big part of all that Um, and all all different genres not just kind of one one kind of music but film was also uh, an important thing i was always going to movies uh in the theater we got a, a vhs player uh when i was very young the the kind that weighed about 85 pounds that was top loading um i remember getting a, a bootleg tape of star wars way before there was a commercial release and my sister and i just watched that over and over and over again um so I pretty much, you know, ran it out, made the, the tape so thin. Um, but we, yeah, it was, you know, a creative family, just doing interesting things. And um, I, from a young age, I knew I wanted to work in movies. And so I was um, kind of going down that path for a long time, experimented with um, video cameras and and early um Video editing, very rudimentary stuff, you know, pretty much between two two tape decks. Um, and it's funny, when I was about 16 or 17, my mom just pretty much put a letter right in front of my face um, that was all about the USC Film School Summer Production Workshop. It was a six-week course in the middle of the summer. And she said, you need to write an essay for this. And I was like, uh, Okay. And so I, I wrote something down, and weeks later I got accepted. And before I knew it, I was 17 years old, and I was driving across the country in a, uh, from Omaha to Los Angeles. Uh, my brother and sister were, were out of college and living in New Mexico and one in Arizona, so we, we would stop and see them on the way to L.A. They dropped me off in L.A., got me set up, and they hopped on a plane and went back to Nebraska and left me in Watts, you know, not very good part of LA for six weeks to take this course. And um, I'm, I'm lucky I had a car, <laughs> so I could kind of get out of that um, that part of town at times. Um, but that was summer of '91. I very vividly remember seeing Terminator 2 uh, in the theater uh, opening night. And I was blown away, and I grabbed five or six of my classmates in the, in the summer production workshop and said, we're going to do this tomorrow. You have to see, see this movie. So I saw it two days in a row, and, and that movie you know, is not only very popular, you know, James Cameron directed it, Arnold Schwarzenegger, but, but it has amazing sound, much mm-hmm. like Star Wars and so many other films um, It really, you know, sort of goes beyond what what people had done previously. Um, But it wasn't really until I was in college and I was involved with the college radio station that I really started sort of experimenting with with audio production. I went into college radio because I loved music and I wanted to just spin records and CDs and all that. But I happened to be there right at the time when they were switching from analog audio production from cart machines and splicing tape to a very, very, very early primitive uh, computer audio editing uh, software. And it just totally made a light bulb go off my head. And I was like, whoa, this is incredible. I can, you can see a visual reference representation of the sound and you can cut it in tons of pieces and rearrange it and heal it and stack things together very easily and and put effects on it and i just thought that was so cool so i kind of dove in headfirst on all that and then a short time later it sort of dawned on me i was like hey i wonder if i could do that for movies and uh,
0: where was undergrad
1: at university of iowa in iowa city What was,
0: what was the connection from, uh, from where you lived versus, you know, going to school in Nebraska, uh, versus going to, to Iowa?
1: Um, it was one of those things where it was far enough away from home, but, but not so far away that if I, you know, wanted to come back for, for something I could, it was about a four hour drive. Iowa city is, is pretty much equidistant between Chicago and Omaha. Um, so I, uh, being involved with college radio got a lot of music connections, and so I was heading to Chicago uh, a number of weekends to go see shows at the Chicago Metro and and see bands and and things like that. It was just a really cool place. It was a cool campus. It was a Big Ten school. I got involved with the the marching band there, and um, and had a blast. and and the It's funny that the the marching band connection you know, I played tuba like my older siblings um, mm-hmm. did and my father and um, joining the college band. You, you know, I, that was the first thing I did when I came to Iowa. Cause band camp starts like two weeks before classes start. So you, you jump into this band and suddenly you have 250 friends. There's parties every night. It's um, there's a lot of shenanigans, but you know, Really good people, and uh, within a week of, of band camp and learning the first show, we were all hopping on planes and flying to uh, New Jersey to perform at the Kickoff Classic in the Meadowlands. And so I hadn't even started school yet, and here I am, you know, <laughs> off on the East Coast, you know, uh, with the marching band.
0: It and- really is a great bridge from high school into college to be able to transition like that, where you have that couple week period before classes start so you already have this um you know large network of people that that you can kind of identify with you know before before day 1 that's terrific
1: and one one tiny little t- anecdote about that trip was that was the same weekend that twin peaks firewalk with me the david lynch film came out in theaters and i was dying to see it and i grabbed some poor Uh, freshman mellophone girl and made her go see it with me. And I think she thought I was a crazy person after (laughs) the movie was done (laughs) because I loved it. But that, you know, kind of showed how I was still rabid about film at the time.
0: And this was in this was when you were in in the New Jersey
1: trip. Yes.
0: okay How did how did you get off uh, from the from the hotel to. to Oh,
1: I I think it was in walking distance. You know, I was I was you know, my mom was always very good at sort of planning trips and figuring things out and hey if we stay here we can do this and we can do that so it just i was not afraid at all you know it's like oh yeah there seems to be a movie theater there let's you know call them up let's find out if this is playing it just you know it was just sort of second nature for me um and then in my second year at iowa i can't remember exactly which which year it was i think it was my second year there were two girls who were in the clarinet section i believe either played clarinet or flute um but they had marched in the dubuque colts drum and bugle corps mm-hmm. which is not far from iowa city and they were in the, the color guard in the colts and they invited me and about probably eight other people over to watch the dci finals vhs tapes um from 94 and i it, it was not my first exposure to drum corps i'd seen drum corps um a couple times it had come through Omaha when I was probably 13, 14. I remember seeing blue devils and, and, um, velvet Knights, And I was like, wow, that's a cool, but why would you want to give up your summer for that? That was kind of my, my reaction. Mm-hmm. Um, but when years later, when I sat down and was watching the the DCI finals, I just started kicking myself and I was like, this is amazing. Why did I never do this? I, you know, I, it was something that I hadn't realized that I've been longing for. While I loved the college band, and had a blast and had a great time and made tons of lifelong friends. Um, there was something about you know, I wanted to perform at a higher level. You know, probably seventy-five percent of the the people in the college band were there just for the social aspect. You know, they mm-hmm, they weren't sure, really. Sure concerned with marching well or playing well and i just you know was getting frustrated uh, time and time again with that and so when i was watching um that show in their apartment i my, my jaw hit the ground and i was like wait a second I, I started looking at the clock and the calendar and going wait i turned 21 in january i still have one year of eligibility and so the the VHS tape ended. Most of the people filed out, and then I stopped and talked to one of the girls from the Colts and said, "I think I really want to do this." And so, um, you know, talked to her about it, and and I had sort of said, "Okay, if I'm if I'm going to do it, I want to try out for one of the top eight cores or whatever." And uh, Rockford, Rosemont, and Madison were all equidistant to. Iowa City, those are the three hometowns of three of these top eight corps, the the Phantom Regiment, the Cavaliers, and the Madison Scouts. And um, she said, yeah, you know, they're all great corps, and I know people from all of them. Um, But, you know, we we spent a lot of time on tour with the Madison Scouts last year, and those guys are, you know, fantastic. And I think personality-wise, you would really fit in with them. I watched their show again on on the tape, and I said, okay, I think I'm going to try out for for Madison. And I was kind of set, like, I'm going to do this one audition. Yeah, I'm not going to try out for multiple cores. I'm just going to pick a core. If I get in, I get in. If I don't, I don't. It wasn't meant to be. And so uh, comes along November 94 and audition camp. Nowadays, there are auditions for a drum corps that are spread around the country multiple Months, multiple weeks, multiple camps. But back then, um, like when you marched too, mm-hmm. it was one weekend. Like yep. everybody comes in auditions, and there were about 700 people who descended on Madison, and and for that audition camp, and there were only about 39 spots available. And I was a nervous wreck. I didn't think I was gonna make it. I went back. To, you know, I think we had sort of our initial orientation, and then you had an audition time some sometime in the next like seven or eight hours. And my time was, was towards the end of that window. So I went back to my motel room and I was practicing my piece over and over again on the tuba and in, in, not...
0: in the hotel room.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think it, I think in this motel, it was pretty much all core yeah. audition members. It, there were really not, it was like a motel six. There were you know, not many other people there. Well,
0: it's a great, um, it's a great example though of, of people that, Um, we do have a lot of listeners that are, that have our alum, you know, drum corps alumni. And, you know, it's interesting because once you get into that world, it is such a self-contained universe that when you bump up against the real world, um, that interaction always was interesting to me. And, and for a drum corps person, it seems perfectly reasonable, to sit in your hotel room and practice your tuba <laughs> audition piece when yep. you know in the next room, you know, there's somebody that just drove, you know, 300 miles from, you know, from wherever and they're just trying to get some, some shut eye and, and they're, and from their perspective, they're thinking, you know, what the hell is going on next door? Let's call, <laughs> you know,
1: call the manager. If they would have pounded on my door, I would have totally said, okay, yeah, no problem. I'll, I'll figure out something else to do. But I, I went back to the high school. Probably about an hour before my audition, and I was I was pretty much shaking like a leaf. I, I um, was so nervous. And then somehow, about a minute before, I, th- I think the there was a person in front of me. They went into the audition. You know, I'm hearing just sort of you know a very quiet version of their music while the doors closed. And somehow, all my nerves just just flowed away. Like everything was fine. Suddenly, I was confident. I went in, did the audition. I didn't nail it, but, but I you know a certain confidence sort of came off, and, and uh, the staff members, there were about eight or nine in there, and they, they were incredibly nice and, and, and very welcoming, and uh, the next day was the visual rehearsal, and then at the end of the day, they sort of picked, okay, here are the people who, were, who made the cut, and I think there were only two spots in the Contra line, um, and I ended up being number three. And so they, they said, sorry, you know, we, 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 really, we really liked you, but you just just missed the cutoff. So I went home and, you know, I went back to Iowa City, went back to college and expecting, okay, I'm not going to march drum corps. And about a week later, Scott Stewart, the uh, director at the time of, of the Madison Scouts, called me up and said, uh, um, hey, Mac, uh, so-and-so who we thought was going to come back is not coming back. And, uh, in sort of a very philosophical Scott Stewart way, he said with, with his death becomes your life as a Madison scout. And, um, and it's funny cause I, you know, just kind of laughed that off in my head, but I was thrilled to, to be part of it. But, but looking back, you know, he, that was such a, a big, statement, and for everything that's happened between now and then, it's it's like, wow, like was was he looking into a crystal ball of like how much this experience would affect me and what I would go on to do later with
0: it? Well, at least with respect to the project that you uh, that we're going to talk about in a few minutes, you know, that experience really set you off in a different, or it seems to me from my perspective really set you down a different road than you may have been on in a more traditional, you know, career path or uh, making films about a more traditional kind of subject matter.
1: Yeah, and that was one thing that, that one of the professors at the USC Production Workshop told me. He said, like, um, you know, there's so many young people who want to make films, but they don't have a voice. You know, they haven't. You need to go out and live life and do do interesting things and do things, and and then you have you know something to 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 talk about to put to put on film to to show a perspective about the world, and I and I didn't I definitely didn't connect those two things way back then, um, but looking back you know he was he was very right, and then I I ended up many years later after being very removed from my one year my rookout rookie age out year of of drum corps uh you know coming back and and making that movie Uh,
0: just to go back to usc for a minute was there did you have any designs on uh going to usc for film or what did you what did you major in when you were in undergrad uh
1: i majored in communications i definitely did want to go to usc um, it was extremely competitive. Uh, my grades weren't quite good enough to get in there. And it was also one of those things where you're, you're not sort of guaranteed, if you do get into to USC, the school, that you will get into the film school portion as well. So I definitely you know, could have done a year somewhere else and then tried to transfer. But you know I, I really liked Iowa. I, I had a great time there. I had a girlfriend at the time who, you know, came from high school, so I was I was pretty much set on staying in Iowa, um, and so I, I I did the the college radio thing. I, I studied film, um, college radio. I ended up becoming music director, and and really ended up spending uh, much more time uh, at the radio station doing production and doing music stuff and all these things more than I should have been going to class. <laughs> um, and my parents, I convinced them at one point to um, help me acquire, purchase a, a Pro Tools system, which for those who don't know, it's, it's sort of the leading uh, audio editing And and now, in some degree, mixing software for film and television and and music and all those things. And it was a very, very early version of Pro Tools. But I would just, you know, bang on it and bang on it and and kind of, you know, figure out what I could uh, being self-taught. And um, I did end up taking uh, a class or two, just brief, like, you know, a four-day class or something like that on on Pro Tools. Um, But then I ended up... Uh, through a friend of a friend uh, met these people who were making a short film in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. Um, this friend was a producer and I was trying to convince her to let me do the sound on the film, even though I'd never done it before. but I was I just you know was determined I'm gonna figure it out and uh, they invited me, they, they didn't say yes, but they said, could, Would you be willing to come out to the, the production, the shoot, and be a sound consultant? And I, I said, Yeah, you know, I'm sure they were going to pay for my ticket and put me up. And uh, I said I could do that. What I didn't realize is that they did not have a boom operator. So I was kind of thrown right into it, uh, being a boom operator. Uh, and this lady who was. One of the grumpiest people I'd ever met was the production sound mixer and she was screaming and yelling and, you know, kept telling me, you're doing it wrong. You're screwing it up, you know, and she would grab the boom pole from me and say, not like that, like this. And, and she was, she was harassing me, but at the same time, she was teaching me the right way to do it.
0: Trial trial by fire.
1: (laughs) Totally. And, um, I think in some ways the the two sisters who were the directors felt sorry for me that I kind of went through that experience and so they they ended up letting me do the post sound on it all by myself. And so at that point I um, was doing it in Pro Tools at home and trying to figure it out and sort of right in the middle of that experience uh, my wife who was my fiance at the time she and I decided uh, let's move to California um, it just seemed like there were going to be a lot more opportunities to, to, get into the business than staying right there in Iowa city. Uh, my parents had retired in Northern California. And so we said, let's, let's move out there, give it a shot. And, um, I, we found an apartment and, and a few months later I found an internship at a tiny studio in San Francisco and I was making coffee and pulling my cables and washing dishes and and I kept trying to, you know, tell the the guy that, you know, hey, give me a chance, you know, I I I can do sound editing, and he was pretty much keeping me at arm's length the whole time. Yeah, whatever, kid. Um, and did that for about six months, and then I happened to trip upon a um, an announcement that there was going to be a sound design seminar back in Iowa City with Walter Murch, uh, who is a very famous picture editor, sound designer from Apocalypse Now. The Godfather, American Graffiti, English Patient, um, Jarhead. He uh, there was going to be a talk with him, but not just him. But there were going to be a bunch of heavies um, in the business who did sound design, but then a bunch of people who study film theory, but but the sound side of film theory. So it was a three day seminar, and it was right back on the campus, my stomping ground. So went back for that and and got to meet a lot of these guys and and go to lunch with them and go to dinner and and both Walter and Randy Tom um were there they both work in the bay area so at the end of the seminar I was like you know hey I live in the bay area I would love to come talk to you and and they gave me their contact information and after you know numerous times to contact them they both agreed to have me visit them you know separately at separate times mm-hmm they worked at separate places. Walter was actually walking, working on the Apocalypse Now Redux when I uh, got to meet with him. And then Randy, uh, it was probably a few weeks later, had been doing early work on Castaway. He had just finished What Lies Beneath. And the timing just ended up right that he needed a, an intern. He wanted uh, someone who would come out two or three days a week and and kind of help with whatever Needed help with, and I said, absolutely. You know, I had to pinch myself. Here I was going to be working at Skywalker Ranch with Randy Tom, who had worked on Empire Strikes Back and Return of the Jedi and won an Oscar for the right stuff. Wow. And so I was, you know, like, wow, yeah, this is an incredible opportunity. Um, Castaway was an interesting project because um, I don't know how familiar you are with the film. But the whole island sequence, which is about 45 minutes, has no music, mm-hmm. yeah. and 95% of the production sound was unusable. Um, and there was just pounding surf the whole time, and Robert Zemeckis, the director, did not want the sound of any birds or bugs or really creatures—anything that would sound entertaining or like a you know a pleasurable uh, you know vacation getaway. He wanted it to sound incredibly desolate so randy and and the team had to build that whole soundscape from the ground up using waves and wind and palm tree creeks and foley and you know little bits of the dialogue and so it was it was a really fascinating thing to be sort of a fly on the wall and kind of see how this was all all being done and i was sent out to go find a bunch of things to record um palm tree clippings and trying to find those big green young coconuts that Tom Hanks is trying to break into in the film. And Mm -hmm. that, that was the whole wild goose chase since those kinds of coconuts are not imported into this country very often. Um, but yeah, it was, it was a crash course. And, and, um, so luckily, you know, it took a number of years to, to keep, you know, working and sort of struggling to, to latch on to projects because this whole business is freelance. Um, yeah, after about four years of of sort of clawing and trying to get my foot in the door and working on little independent and freebie projects, I I finally started to get steady work, and so I've I've been blessed and, and very fortunate to work at Skywalker Sound for about sixteen years now.
0: I, I love the irony of you moving to California, and the seminar occurring back in Iowa. Yep. For you to meet California guys. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, you can't you can't make that
1: up. And it was a total accident that I found out about that seminar in the first place. It it was just dumb luck.
0: Well, the you know, the, the emphasis on um on sound is one thing that really grabbed me when I uh had an opportunity to sit down and watch your latest project, Scouts Honor, uh, the documentary that uh, uh, that uh, we're going to talk about, because you know the subject matter. Without giving away too much, it, it's uh, about a single season in the Madison Scouts' history. Were and you know it, this is the first. Um, this is the first video piece of work I've ever seen that. The sound of the performance felt to me like it was live. It's a it's a very uh, recording an ensemble that is this spread out in outdoor conditions is very tricky. And to make it sound like it sounds live is almost I mean, I really haven't heard anyone do it yet the way that you accomplished uh, it. So um, let's why don't we talk a little bit about Scouts Honor, because it's a terrific uh, it's a terrific film.
1: Well, thank you so much. Um, there are a couple of, of sort of things that sparked the, the, the idea of the project. Um, and the first one was a guy that I work with, at Skywalker, who's been here a little bit longer than I have, uh, named John J.T. Torrios He has been um, part of the Drum Corps activity uh, off and on for over 30 years. Um, he he was involved with the Sacramento Freelancers. He was involved with SOME. He's he's done some recording for for DCI and and the Blue Devils. Um, he he knew I marched Scouts, and so we we had sort of this connection early on. It, but it was about 2009 when he called me up and said, "Hey, can you come down to to this room?" It was a small room, but a home theater system was was set up. And I said, "Yeah, what's going on?" And he played back. Um, Uh, two performances that he had recorded at the DCI West show at Stanford Stadium uh, of the Concord Blue Devils and Santa Clara Vanguard. And it was just a single camera shot from, from the press box. But my jaw just hit the ground and I was like, Oh my gosh, like I have never heard drum corps like this. Like how on earth did you do this? And he, you know, has been, fascinated with live instrument recording for years and he's you know when he was a teenager he you know would record stuff with a portable cassette deck you know it was just crappy and but listen to it in the car and he was for years and years and years has been trying to hone his skills and never be satisfied he's always trying new mics and trying different techniques and and doing different things and constantly tweaking and he Essentially, uses shotgun microphones, high-end shotgun microphones, and and places them in very specific zones to cover the the activity on the field, and then two two microphones for the surround channels to to capture the audience and any reflection from from the stands. So it's a, it's essentially a five point one setup, the way he records it, and. I, I think there are a lot of people who recorded drum core with omni microphones which are not directional they end up just picking up sound in all different directions and the problem is you get you end up getting a lot of phasing right and what what phasing is is um the same sound is reaching two different microphones at slightly different times so it ends up sounding almost kind of comb filtery or weird um Right. It's, and, it's it's kind of hard to describe, but if you if somebody pointed it out to you, you'd go, oh yeah, I totally hear that. And so his his technique was really trying to you know make these specific zones and have the microphones at, um you know it's all math, just trying to get you know where they can shoot over the front ensemble and the front ensemble speakers, but be at the same level as where where the horns are are pointing to the box so you're really just trying to capture all that stuff and he was never satisfied with you know you know you can never hear the tubas or the contras well enough for the baritones um you know the the percussion goes backfield, and you start losing the definition of the snares and there's there's no way you can hear the tenor drums and all those things so he just wanted to get everything as authentic as possible and so we that was one thing that we sort of filed away in our head and then my directing partner tom tollefson he's not a filmmaker well he is now but um he's a lawyer in jacksonville florida he and i were seat partners on the drum bus in 95 and uh shared a love for music and movies and and talked about all that stuff all the time um he was watching a pbs miniseries called circus that followed the big apple circus and it was um while they did show a lot of the performance moments the spectacle so much of it was the circus behind the circus Mm -hmm. about a touring group and what goes on and the drama and and all these things that people normally don't see and he and his girlfriend at the time looked at each other and said oh my god that's drum corps and she actually said to him like hey you and Mac should make a, a movie about the madison scouts and so he texted me um, one night, I think it was after a number of drinks, and said, hey, let's make a movie about the Madison Scouts. Are you in? And uh, he, you know, I think, was thought it was more of a joke, but forgot how ambitious I can be at times. <laughs> right, right. Uh, to my own fault. And so the next day, I said, yeah, you know, I got to thinking about this. And, you know, if we can find a way to pay for it, let's do it. And he was like, really? And, and it kind of helps that Dan Peterson, who's the, the core director of the Mattis Scouts, he marched at the same time that Tom and I did so so we know Dan well. And he um, so we contacted Dan first and sort of told him this idea. And he said, well, I need you to get in touch, you know, introduce you to Chris Komnick, who's the executive director of, of the Scouts. And Chris was more skeptical of us Um and rightfully so, he didn't know who we were. And it turns out there are lots of people who who get the idea of that they want to make a drum corps documentary, but ninety-five percent of them never start or never finish, you know, think, oh yeah, I can do this, and just have no idea of the the amount of work that, that goes into something like that. It's just documentary filmmaking in itself is 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 really tough and grueling, but now you're following a group that has a very set schedule. And they have and it's very brutal conditions with long hours and the hot sun and and you're sleeping on on gym floors or classroom floors just like the members. And so it's it's not <laughs> and it's not an easy thing to, to do.
0: It's it's interesting you bring up the uh, the circus metaphor because after I aged out, when I went into the business world and people wanted to know what I had done for the last five years. Sometimes I actually did tell people I was in the circus. It was the closest it was the closest thing that mainstream people knew about uh, to explain you know what the drum corps experience is because it's a very singular um, you know kind of thing. And I think you're exactly right with with your comment that you know ninety five percent of people, you know never. Start. You know, they may have an idea for a project. Uh, They may do some initial planning or initial workup of the concept, but actually getting underway is what separates, you know, the five percent from from everybody else. Um, Now, the arc of the story spans. It seems to me the audition from the audition weekend to to DCI finals, which for those of us who don't know is about a a nine or 10 month span of time. So how much? I, I mean, this really was a a quite a long project in terms of gathering, gathering material.
1: It was very long. Well, you know, the initial concept from Tom's text, I think was March of 2011, uh, Chris Komnick um invited us to to come on the road for a week in two thousand eleven, sort of three quarters of the way through the season just to see what it was like and it was also sort of a sort of a test shoot as we like to call it, mm-hmm. find out is this you know even a viable thing to try to do um you know we still had our doubts even after that test shoot like is this is really gonna work you know we we knew that it was gonna be hard um it's yeah. People think, oh yeah, making a movie is hard. Like you, you have no idea. It's it is so. You know, I've easily put more than ten thousand hours into this project since two thousand eleven. Um, we shot about nine, eight or nine trips in two thousand twelve. I guess that that includes some of the auditions late in two thousand eleven, into two thousand twelve, and then we actually ended up. You know, having to follow up and get additional stuff from Dan Peterson, the core director, who who kind of um, acts as a pseudo narrator for the film. He kind of helps glue it all together. So we actually Mm -hmm. shot a little bit of him in right after the 2013 season. But it was it was easily a year of editing. um, And then we screened it in in september 2013 was the 75th anniversary of the the madison scouts and they had a a big event in madison and there were hundreds of people that came in alumni from all over the country so we screened a very rough cut for them it was it was longer it was uh it was definitely not nearly as as uh good story-wise but we we had all the pieces in there you know we knew that we had a film. But after that, I ended up bringing in a, a friend who is a picture editor who worked with Walter Merch. And he took a look at it. He, he comes from a background of, of knowing really nothing about band, marching band drum corps. So mm-hmm. we wanted somebody to look at it to say, OK, is this really making sense? What's working? What's not? I was super sort of held to, I want to keep the exact chronology of the season. But he was able to sort of, um, you know, take my hand and go, you know, this scene would be a little bit better if we put it here, just story-wise. So I kind of mm-hmm. had to let, let go of a few of those moments. So,
0: yeah, there's a couple of points in the story, you know, one, I, without giving away the big surprises, uh, you know, uh, you know, one around the 35 minute mark that kind of stops, stops the viewer in their tracks and, and you know, uh, the the thing that really impressed me about the film is I you know, I it was not what I thought it was going to be. In other words, I expected it to be sort of a story of how the production for that season evolved from concept to the finals performance. But it really, you know, it is a little bit about that, but it's really a story of three of the members. And they are each facing their own uh, trials, some internal of, with the organization, some because of external uh, forces that they have to deal with. How did you select those three members in particular?
1: Well, during that test shoot in 2011, one of my goals was to meet as many people in that, that group of, of performers, um, and, and especially the ones who were coming, planning to come back the next year. And I wanted to find out um, Tom and I really wanted to feature somebody from the the brass line somebody from the drum line and somebody from the color guard and so we were looking for potential people uh, Brandon the drummer we met during that that time frame mm-hmm. um, he was really good on camera had a very distinctive look um, and he he definitely stood out as the the top candidate on the drum line. Um, I was talking to one of the color guard members and, uh, not members, sorry, uh, color guard instructors. And she was telling me about all, all these different color guard people and she was you know saying, Oh, so-and-so is interesting because of this, so-and-so of that. And then she suddenly sort of clammed up and I knew that she was thinking something, but she didn't want to tell me what it was. And then, uh, she said, well, let me talk to this person and, and, and there's something that happened, but let me talk to them and, and I'll, I'll get back to you. And so the next day, this young man came up to us and and told us this, this story that was just, you know, sort of blew me away of, of what had just happened in his life. And, um, but you didn't want to give it away so i'm, I'm not going to give it away either <laughs> well it's but, your, um,
0: it's it's totally your call i mean it's yeah. it's interesting because it's you know you you were completely immersed in this idea of of the scouts as an ensemble and right. then there's a very real world thing that happens to one of them that really kind of uh you know ends up producing a lot of kind of not tension, but uh, yeah. you know, drama. I guess for
1: yeah, this this kid's life was was seriously derailed, and but he he came up to us and said like, hey, this is me, this is what's going on, and I was you know like, do you really want to do this? And he said, yeah, I, I think I do. And I found found out later that the you know the instructor who who I was mentioning who originally clammed up, she kind of gave him a little push and said, that, you know, I think this would be a good thing for you. Like it would it would be sort of a way to, to help sort of cope and express yourself through this. And, um, so I'm, I'm definitely very grateful that she did. Now the, the brass player Hunter, we didn't meet, um, until probably about eight months later at one of the audition camps. Um, actually met his parents first. They were incredibly sweet and and stood out for me right away. Actually did an interview with them that didn't end up in the movie, but, um, dad got very emotional very quickly and you know just being so proud of his son um so met hunter later and and decided like okay he's 15 years old you know he's very green going into this but he definitely has the uh, a good chance of showing the maturity and the growth over, over, over the course of the film, which uh, I think we were able to, to portray from, you know, starting out not knowing what it is and then and then coming out at the end. You know, he, he even looks physically different by, by the end of the movie. So it's, it's pretty drastic. And, and a lot of people who, who see the movie who have no knowledge of drum corps really relate with hunter because they're he's the rookie and they're the rookies watching it they they're learning along with him so in a lot of ways you know hunter ends up being um the favorite for for love audience members
0: well it's it's a, a very relatable set of of characters I, I i mean they're real people i don't mean to refer to them as characters but for the purposes okay. of the story sure um where i think you've really accomplished a very difficult thing which is to make this you know very insular uh niche activity uh re- you know relatable to people that have nothing you know have no context for what for what it is
1: we wanted to make a movie that that anybody, because like like you said, you you described it like you were in the circus. All of us who've been part of drum corps have had that struggle of trying to explain it, and people's eyes just glaze over, and they're like, "What are you talking about?" And they lose interest very quickly. So we wanted to make something that you could have a DVD or Blu-ray or you know a digital copy, and be like, "Hey, just just sit down and watch this with me, and and you'll understand it." And that's, that was one of our, our goals in this. And from what we can tell, that's it's definitely worked. You know, whether you want to sit down grandma or your next-door neighbor or your coworker, they just get it. And they're like, wow, these kids, they work incredibly hard. I've never seen anything like that. And then with audio and the performances, it's got that wow factor. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, sort of, it's pulling at the heartstrings. It's explaining it, not dumbing it down. And somehow, magically, I don't, I don't know quite how we pulled it off, it works for both, you know, the drum corps enthusiasts and the people just off the street.
0: It really does. I, I think, you know, either intentionally or inadvertently, you made one of the greatest uh, recruiting pieces <laughs> for, uh, for, for the scouts in particular, but definitely, uh, you know, for anybody in the DCI activity that's trying to, um, you know, trying to convey what the whole thing's all about. Uh, you you do it in ninety minutes. It's uh, it's terrific.
1: And yeah, one thing that that I think makes our production stand out from some of the other drum corps documentaries is is we decided that we really did want to get the parents involved because drum corps doesn't just uh, affect the members, but it really affects the whole family. And some families are incredibly supportive and. You know, we'll go on the road and volunteer and, and do things, and others just are not as supportive, and and I think that you know just sort of adds to to you know the overall drama of of the production.
0: Well, we have so the documentary is now available for pre-order on iTunes. Correct? Am I right in saying that, or is it has it been released yet?
1: um it's available on iTunes it's in a pre-order window right now but but it's available very soon so don't don't wait to get it
0: order now so if uh, <laughs> and it's it's so important i think to support independent artists like like you because um there's so much out you know whether it's music or whether it's film or tv there's a lot of stuff out there with with big dollars behind it that's not very good, and you know, and I think, in my opinion, whether it's from a societal standpoint or whether it's content, how well it's done, or or what the message of it is, um, but you really have turned out a, a really high quality, um, you know, production that does a lot of good, I think, for a lot of different, you know, constituencies. So. Um, everybody should check out. Go to iTunes right now and and uh, and search for Scouts Honor. And obviously, on the podcast's webpage, uh, we'll have we'll embed the promo uh, if that's okay with you. And, Definitely. And uh, we'll we'll have some information more more about about Mac and his background and a little bit about the film. The promo will be on there, so you can you can view it uh, right in right on the. Uh, uh, Podcast webpage, which is creativeconfidential.net. And, uh, Mac, I I can't thank you enough. This has been a pleasure. It's really, was really great to, uh, get to be able to dig into the film a little bit.
1: Oh, thanks so much, Brian. I, I really appreciate you having me.
0: Okay. Well, hopefully, you know, we'll come back for a part two whenever you're, whenever, you know, your next project is around. Or if, you know, one thing we didn't really get into and, and I, we should talk at some point soon is I'd really, I'm really curious about how, you know, the process of obtaining financing really is a huge challenge for uh, for young filmmakers, and and I think it's something that everybody faces. And uh, you know, let's maybe we table that for next time, and we'll we'll come back in a couple of months and, and spend some time on that.
1: That'd be great. I'd like that.
0: Okay. Well, Mac, thanks again, and uh, really look forward to uh, to being able to speak with you again.
1: Cool. Thanks, guys. Sure thing. All right. Take care.
0: Thanks for listening to Creative Confidential with Brian Tuck. To have Brian consult for your arts organization or to book Brian for public speaking engagements or personal coaching sessions, send an email to brian at creativeconfidential.net. That's B-R-Y-A-N at creativeconfidential.net. To get future episodes automatically, subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or visit us on the web at creativeconfidential.net. This has been a Steve Mittnon social media creation.
1: creation. Steve Mittenn Social